Hospitality is an interesting subject to tackle in the context of a group of, of men. But as I was thinking about hospitality, I started to think about uh, Yelp and Yelp reviews, because Yelp reviews so often have to do with uh, the level of hospitality that's, that's offered in, a, uh, in an establishment. And so I found these in preparing the, for this week, and they were somewhat amusing. This first one is for a Motel 6 in Hollywood, California. Starts out with this, I've never stayed here. It's a good way to start a review on an establishment. I've never stayed here, but this is in my neighborhood, and a friend of mine died in one of the rooms here in May. (laughs) If you're going to make the effort to stay somewhere in Hollywood, try to pick a place that at least doesn't feel like somebody died in your room. This is also a pretty big drug neighborhood, hence all of the street barricades, making it impossible to drive straight down Yucca. Shell out some extra bucks for a real hotel or look on Airbnb. That's the review for Motel 6. Not too pleased with them. And then there's this one for those of you that enjoy pawn shops, Highland Park Music and Pawn in Highland Park, California. The review says this, has a ton of guitars, all seem rather overpriced. Service is what you expect from a Russian mob-backed storefront. (laughs) I never understood pawn shops that deal in used fossils, Timex, and Invictas. I like my pawn shops to carry Rolex and Omegas. I'm pawn shop snooty. I didn't know you could be pawn shop snooty, but apparently that person is. Then there's this one, which is my favorite review, I think. It's for Trader Joe's, and hopefully your wives are not watching this morning. But it says this. It says, what a farce has been played on the California sheep. Trader Joe's is an overpriced grocery store for divorced bitter women with cats. A whole aisle of cat and dog food. Please, there are only five aisles in the place, and two are liquor and wine. One is chips, and you could make another of just chocolate for the bitter, loveless cat women. For some reason, they can't keep potatoes, leeks, artichokes, or practically any other fresh veggie in stock. Look, if you're looking for fresh vegetables at Trader Joe's, you've missed your mark. Took them years to start stocking polenta. When the Greek-style yogurt craze started many years back, it took them six months for them to start stocking it. Where's the sassafras root? That's a good question. I don't even know what that is. This is not much of an alternative to Safeway. If I ever want something unusual or not sold in the big box grocery stores, this is not the answer. I'd try Whole Foods instead. But I do like the pre-made marinara that Trader Joe's sells. So they decided to throw that in as a, a, a perk at the end. Trader Joe's. And then finally, one more. Uh, And I I put this one in here because I'm sure this review came after my family frequented this establishment. Cheesecake Factory says this, run, retreated from the patio to the bar in an effort to escape the families with screaming kids. Guilty. Guilty there, right? Uh, But these reviews are are pretty ridiculous. But again, it's, it's because people were dissatisfied with the level of service or the level of hospitality that they received at these establishments. Hospitality is something our our world understands, our world values, our world looks for in a place that's supposed to be a place of service, a place of care, a place of love, a place of provision. Well, God also cares about hospitality. In fact, so much so that he puts it in the list of defining attributes of a quality man of God, the list of defining attributes of a pastor or an elder. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded and self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. We find that quality there, that attribute there, and maybe it's a little jarring for us because when we think about hospitality, maybe what comes to mind for us is, well, we think of opening up our homes or opening up our, our wallets to care for the needs of somebody who's 
uh, more destitute or, or needs to be cared for. Or maybe we think that it's something that, that women are better at than men. You know, my wife handles the hospitality in our family. I don't really focus too much on that. She's the one that, that plans all of our hosting and gatherings and everything else. Or maybe you just think, you know, not only is it something that women do, but it's really not something that's very manly to be hospitable or to be known for your sense of hospitality at all. Or maybe you just say, you know what, well, others are better at it than I am. But unfortunately, in the, the passage that we're going to look at together this morning in Romans chapter 12, hospitality is something that is commanded of all of us, regardless of who you are, what gender you are, or anything else. There are no qualifiers in this passage. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 says very clearly to us, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's a command. It's an order that the apostle Paul gives us. And again, it's there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in Titus chapter 1. It's right next to the qualities and the attributes of self-control, of upright living, of living above reproach, of living a holy life. And then he, God puts in here this, this attribute, this quality of being a man of, of hospitality. And so we would do well to find out what does that mean for us? How should I be a man of hospitality? How can I make sure that I'm answering this call, that I'm obeying the command of Romans 12, 13? And to do that, we're going to actually look at the verses preceding Romans 12, 13. We're going to look at Romans 12, verses 9 through 12 together this morning. Romans 12, 9 begins this way. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. This passage gives us a picture of what it looks like to be a man who is hospitable, a man who cares for the needs of others, who welcomes both friend and stranger into his home, who serves them alike. And the reality is this, what we'll see is to be hospitable is ultimately to love others as you yourself have been loved by Christ. It's to love others as you yourself have been loved by Christ. It's, yes, opening up your home to a brother because Christ has welcomed you into the, the household of God. It's giving to meet the need of a brother because God has given Christ to meet a need that far surpasses any earthly need that might present itself to us. And it's a willingness to enter into the suffering of our brothers in Christ because God through Christ has entered into our suffering and provided us a comfort through him that we should now in turn provide a comfort to one another. Again, Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine is how it begins. Let love be genuine. Love, it's, it's agape love. It's the fatherly love. It's the love that God the Father has for you and I, not expecting anything in return, but, but simply choosing and deciding to set his affection and his love upon us. And it says, let love be genuine. Literally in the Greek, it's let love be without hypocrisy. Biblical hospitality is, it's not done for the approval of men. It's not done looking over your shoulder to see who's watching you as you give to meet the needs of another. It's not done so that you can maintain some sort of, of look or facade in the community. But it's instead done out of a sincere concern for others, a genuine care for others, a love that's not hypocritical, that doesn't say one thing and then act a different way. I think we get a, a great glimpse of this pure, genuine love through the, the musical, the play, the book, Les Mis. 
in one of the early scenes after Valjean has been paroled, he ends up in the home of a priest and he wakes up before the household wakes up, Valjean does, after having been shown kindness by this priest and his, his entourage. And he, he goes through the house and he steals things from the priest and he runs. And Javert, the, the, the arm of the law, the arm of justice catches up with him and finds him and he has these possessions in his, in his bag that are, are clearly not his and Javert sees that he's a, a parolee and he brings him back to the home of the priest and he knocks on the door and the priest answers the door and, and we expect the priest to be outraged. We ex- expect the, the priest to be insulted and offended and to demand justice, but instead the priest looks at Valjean and without skipping a beat says, my dear friend, you, you forgot the most valuable that we had given to you. And he calls for the silver candlesticks in the home and he brings them and he places them inside Valjean's bag along with the other things that Valjean had stolen from the man and he says to him take these these are worth far more than anything else you've already taken and then he pulls Valjean close and he says I've, I've purchased your soul with with these goods go now and, and live a different life that love without expecting anything in return that love that doesn't make sense that that concern for Valjean when Valjean had spit in his face and and degraded the man and and stolen from the man. That sort of love is a genuine love. It's a Christ-like love. It's a love that's concerned with the well-being of another. James 127, James says pure religion. James 127, pure religion is this. It's to care for who? The orphans and the widows. Is that all pure religion cares about is just the orphans and the widows? No. Pure religion also cares for the Fortune 500 companies and the CEOs of those companies. But James identifies the orphans and the widows and he says pure religion cares for these two groups. Why? Because they can't do anything for you. Because to love them, to care for them, to meet the needs of these two classifications, these two groups, the orphans and the widows, is to love without expecting anything in return. It's to love from a a genuine care, a genuine love for them. No, men, we can't claim to, to love Christ without this type of love for one another. It's imperative to our relationship with the Lord. In fact, it's a defining marker of whether or not we are truly saved. 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. 1 John 4, 19 through 21. John says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not have love for his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have for him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Galatians 5.22, for the fruit of the spirit is what? Love, it's right off the bat. It leads that one out right there. Colossians chapter three, verse 14. After the apostle Paul tells us what we're supposed to put on with one another, compassionate hearts, forgiving one another in the Lord as Christ forgave us. And he says, and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then there's, of course, 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love, but that chapter begins by the Apostle Paul making a a phenomenal statement. He says, look, if I had the tongue of men and angels, if I could speak more eloquently than any man on the face of the planet, with more power, with more unction than any man that has ever lived before me, if I could speak with the tongue of men and angels, but I had not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I'm worthless. So we see that, that there's a genuine concern for the good of others. It must be present in our lives and it must be present in the life of a hospitable man. 
Our first point together this morning is this. Be genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Be genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Have this love for them. In other words, don't be telemarketers in the church family. The telemarketer calls, you answer the phone, and they start out, well, Mr. Burner, how are you doing today? It's so great to talk to you. I hope you've had a great day today. And you can tell it's a telemarketer right off the bat. And you know that they don't care about you at all. They're reading from a script, right? Well, man, as we walk around the churches, we're interacting with each other. We can't be like that. We need to have a genuine concern for each other. Think about how many times you walk around, maybe even this morning you've done it, or on the patio you've done it. And you walk up to somebody and you say, hey, how are you? And you're, you're walking, uh, continuing on your way before they even answer, because what do you assume they're going to say? Good. And it's only when they go, you know, not great that you just stop in your tracks, right? Because you're like, well, that's not what you're supposed to say. You don't understand. This is a casual greeting. I don't have time to really care about what's going on in your life. That's why I just asked that question. If I had time, we would sit down for coffee. Man, even in those interactions, we need to start being more genuinely concerned with the welfare of one another. If you're going to ask a brother how he's doing when he shows up, when he walks by, be concerned about him. Be genuine about that. I love when somebody asks me, hey, how are you doing? And I say, good. And they say, are you, are you really doing okay? Because that's, then I know they're, they're diving deeper than the surface there, right? Think about Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, when everybody is selling their, their possessions and everything to give to the, the good of the church body, to meet the needs of the saints, right? Why? Because they had this genuine concern for the welfare of others. And then you have Ananias and Sapphira who think to themselves, well, we, we need to save face. We need to jump in this as well because look at how everybody thinks about the people that are giving so much and, and how highly they're esteemed. So let's sell what we have, but you know what? We're going to hold back a portion of it for ourselves. And they come to the apostles and they say, hey, we want to give to meet the needs of the saints. And they're asked, is this really everything that you got for the sale of your property? Yeah, this is it. This is everything. And what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? They're struck dead, both of them, one after another. Because they lied to God, but also because they were not genuinely concerned for the welfare of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're trying to put on a show, right? Well, man, we can't be like that. We love not because of what we get in return. We love not expecting anything in return. We love not even because somebody is worthy of our love. Because that's how we've been loved. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and following. The apostle Paul says, and listen to his description of us in this. And ask yourself, were we anything lovable when Christ came for us? The Apostle Paul says, for a while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, we were unlovely and unlovable. But man, that's the love that we're called to model to others. Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in, think of any of the attributes that Paul could have listed here. To be an imitator of God and walk in holiness, walk in justice, walk in compassion, walk in, 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 in righteousness. 
But no, he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So do, do we see, men, how this, this idea of being hospitable, of loving others with this genuine love, it, it's not an optional thing for us that we can set aside and say, well, that's not my gift, it's for somebody else. No, this is a marker of being a genuine and true Christian man. And if you don't have it, then John would say, according to 1 John 4, that there's a disconnect between your profession of faith and the reality of your faith. So what does it look like for us to have a genuine concern? A few points here, action points. Number one, put away a cynical spirit. Put away a cynical spirit. When you meet the need of a brother in Christ, I mean, so often it's, it's tempting for us to say, is this really a need? Does he really need my help in this? Or is this just a, a way for him to try to not work as hard as he should? Man, put away the cynical spirit. Love believes all things, right? Second, put away a critical spirit. Put away a critical spirit. Well, if he hadn't made the bad decisions that he made, he wouldn't be in this position to begin with. He made his bed, let him lay in it. Lie in it, whatever the grammar is there. Put away that critical spirit, that judgmental spirit. God didn't look at us and say, well, they made their bed, let them lie in it. Or lay in it. Third, put to death a competitive spirit. Put to death a competitive spirit that says, well, if I help this brother out, it's going to be to my detriment. Christianity is not looking out for number one. At least not number one as defined by you. Fourth, take the 1 Corinthians 13 inventory. Go through that passage. Love is... And as it describes love, look at each and every one of those attributes and then hold your life up to it and say, how am I doing in this? Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I keeping a record of wrong? Last, do what the Apostle Paul says in the rest of verse 12. Hate or abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. In the lives of others, we should hate what is evil in their life and, and hold fast to what is good. Encourage the good and, and call out the evil because we're care, we care about them. We're concerned about them. We love them. In our own life, we need to hate that, that which is evil and our sin and put sin to death in our lives so that we can be put in a position like we talked about last time with honorable of being useful to God in the lives of others. The hospitable man is a man whose perspective has been altered by an encounter with the gospel, by an encounter with God's love for them. And one of the ways we know that our love for others is genuine is that it shows itself in how we interact with one another. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The beginning of verse 10, a better translation for us is this. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's the language of, of family love, of the love that you have for those that are in your own immediate family, your, your children, your brothers and sisters, your parents, your, your spouse. This is a love that we should have this affection for one another that, that is consumed with the good of others. As, as you think about your family members, you're not just gonna be genuinely concerned for their welfare. You're gonna do everything that you can possibly do to see their welfare come to fruition. You're going to do everything that you possibly can do for their good. 
You're going to put your love and your concern into action. And that's why he says, outdo one another in talking about honor. Outdo one another in thinking about honor. No, he says, outdo one another in what? Showing honor. Showing honor. I love the ESV here, and I'm thankful for this translation because it puts it in the realm of competition. And as men, we love competition, don't we? And here is divinely sanctioned, God-ordained, God-pleasing competition. If you have a competitive spirit, put it to work to try to outdo your brothers in Christ in showing them honor. That's the idea here. That would be so driven and devoted to the good of others that we want to outdo our brothers in Christ by blessing them more than they could bless us. This is that next step because it's the, the step of action where our genuine concern translates to a genuine commitment of seeing that welfare realized in their lives. It's point number two this morning. It's this, be devoted to the good of your brothers. Be devoted to the good of your brothers. Again, not just genuinely concerned and it stops there, but you're actually devoted to seeing that good realized. This is what we find in Philippians chapter two with the apostle Paul's description of what Christ has done for us. He says this, he says, starting in verse three of Philippians two, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the type of love that we're talking about here. When God looked down and saw the plight of man, he didn't just look at us and go, well, that man, that's really unfortunate and I'm, I'm genuinely concerned for their welfare, but man, Jesus, this is gonna cost you a lot and I don't think you're really gonna wanna do what this is gonna cost you. No, actually, instead, we know from scripture because of his great love for, for us from eternity past, he knew that he was gonna give Christ to see our ultimate good come to fruition. Does your life demonstrate your genuine concern for your brothers in Christ? It's one thing to say, yes, I love the brothers in Christ that I have here. I love the men in my small group. But does your life bear that out? James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. James says this, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then here's his example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's interesting that James uses that example in talking about faith and works and the relationship of showing our work, showing our faith by our works. Why would he use that? Because he understands that if we understand, if we know how much we have been loved by Christ, it's going to work itself out in how much we love and care for the others in our lives. And so he gives an example of hospitality to say, brothers, you want to see your faith at work. How are you treating one another? 
Men, praying for one another is, is great and good and it's something that we should do 100%, absolutely. But sometimes when we say, I'll pray for you, it's our modern day equivalent of saying, be warm and be filled. Maybe there's a brother in your group who has a need financially. And the Lord's put you in a position where you have the ability to meet that need or you have the ability to at least help that brother and you tell that brother, you know what, I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that the Lord's gonna provide for you. When really in reality, it may be that the Lord has put you in the position and, and you're praying for the Lord to do something to provide for that brother when the Lord wants to use you to provide for that brother. Or maybe your brother's having marriage problems and you say to him, you know what, I'm gonna be praying for your marriage problems. I'm gonna be praying that your marriage would be strengthened and that you would be a godly husband to your wife. That's a good thing to do to pray for that. But maybe you're in a position where you can provide counsel to that brother, accountability to that brother, love for that brother in a way that goes beyond just saying, hey, I'll pray for you. But that's gonna enter into the, the trial, the suffering of that brother and walk alongside him and support him in a tangible way. And you're praying that God would do something to strengthen the marriage and God wants to use you to strengthen that marriage. Or maybe you've got a brother whose child is, is sick and he's working long hours to support his family and his wife is caring for his kids and he's coming home and he wants to be able to love his wife well and you're praying, you know what, brother, I'm gonna pray that you've got time to do everything that's on your plate. I know that your plate is full right now, but maybe what God wants you to do is to step up and say, hey, how can I help you? Can I come over? Can I mow your grass for you? Can I clean up the, the, the dishes after dinner one night for you guys? Can, can I help? How, just put me to work. Let me do something to help you right now and to enter in to go beyond be warm and be filled. Solomon says this in Proverbs chapter three, verses 27 through 28. Proverbs three twenty-seven: do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Verse 28, do not say to your neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I'll give it to you when you have it with you today. The hospitable man of God is gonna put skin in the game. He's gonna invest himself and his resources for the good of his brothers because he understands how much Christ has sacrificed for him. We're devoted to the good of our brothers because Christ was first devoted to our good. John chapter 13, John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you what? Love one another, how? As I have loved you that you love one another as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Man, that's an astounding statement from Christ. He doesn't say, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if your doctrine is sound. Is sound doctrine important? Yes. But if it's an end in and of itself, you've wasted your doctrine. You've wasted your theology. The point of doctrine is to transform your life. And Christ is saying one of the primary areas that it's gonna transform your life is how you love one another as brothers in Christ. By this, people will know that you are my followers, that you are my disciples. Not that you go to a church with expository preaching. Praise God that you do. But if that is the end in and of itself, it's pointless and it's a waste. It's that you have a Theology and a doctrine and a knowledge of the word that transforms your life and works itself out in how you care for one another. That's what's gonna be a signal and a marker of you as a follower of Jesus Christ. That you love one another. 
Well, this love for one another, it's only going to be sustained with the right motives. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't be slothful in zeal. What a great play on words. You don't often put the words sloth and zeal in the same sentence, do you? Why? Because they're opposites of one another. Somebody who is zealous is not slothful. Somebody who is slothful is not zealous. It's, it's one is lazy and one is indolent and the other one is passionate and fervent and eager. And the apostle Paul says, when it comes to loving one another, being genuine in our love for one another, he says, don't be slothful in this. Don't be lazy. Don't wait for somebody else to meet the need. But be fervent in spirit. Man, we have to fight that inclination towards laziness, don't we? When we're working out at the gym, on the bike, on the treadmill, wherever it is, we don't want to be there if we're honest with ourselves, right? We, we don't. It's not fun. Every time I have to exercise, I, I am reminded that I hate Adam a little bit more, right? Because of the fall. Man, Adam, if you just led your wife well and just slapped her hand away from that tree, wouldn't have to be on this dumb bike, right? But we need motivation to drive us when we work out, don't we? We need a, a reason why. We need a goal behind it. So maybe it's your health. You're thinking, you know what? I want to be on this, this, uh, this ball that's spinning around the sun a, bit, a little bit longer, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the gym. My health is important. Or maybe it's your physical appearance. The focal point banquet comes up, you put on those pants and they're a little bit tighter than they were last year and it's a little bit harder to button them and you're like, you know what, I, I need to drop a few because uh, I may have put on a, a few more in the last year. Or maybe you're just like me and you think, you know what, if I'm gonna eat ice cream tonight, I need to hit the bike this morning because I want them to just cancel out. Whatever it is, we understand that concept that we have to have the right motivation to sustain us through the workout. Because if you don't have that motivation, you're going to give up when it gets difficult. Well, it's the same thing when we love one another. It's the same thing when it comes to hospitality. We have to have the right motivation. Point number three this morning, persist in brotherly love with the right motives. Persist in brotherly love with the right motives. Paul says, be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. That word fervent, it's the word for boiling, so you consider a, a boiling pot of water and the energy and the activity that's contained within there. And Paul's saying, let your spiritual lives be fervent, be boiling and serve the Lord. Man, the only thing that's gonna keep you persistent and active and showing hospitality and this genuine love for one another is knowing that first and foremost in loving others, you are serving Christ. Matthew chapter 25, the separation of the sheep and the goats. Jesus says there that he's going to say to the sheep, enter in because when you saw me naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. But it says, then the righteous will answer him, verse 37, and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, men, as we love one another, as we care for the needs of one another, we are first and foremost serving God, serving Christ. And that's our motivation. That's our drive. Because the flesh is going to rear up and the flesh is going to throw these thoughts in our lives. It's going to say, again? Really? Again? I have to help you again with this? Aren't we done with this? Or you're going to think to yourself, why can't somebody else step in and help? 
Or maybe you'll think, you know, it's, it's not really convenient for me right now to help. It's not really convenient for me to right now to, to love. Or you're going to think to yourself, you know what, if I love you in this way, this is going to hurt me. It's going to delay my plans. It's going to interrupt my agenda. But men, imagine this. If the person that was in need that was asking for help was not somebody around your table, but was Christ himself. Would you throw these responses at Jesus? Not for a minute. Well, men, we need to start thinking that way. That in serving one another and loving one another, we are loving and serving Christ. That it's an act of obedience to God. Because here's the reality. We aren't called to hospitality when it's convenient. We're not called to give out of an abundance. And we're not called to serve only the people who are easy to love. And thank God we're not. Because none of y'all would love me, I guarantee it. John chapter 13, again, verse 34 through 35. This is how we're called to love one another. A new commandment that I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. And how did Christ love us? He died for us when Romans 5, we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. When we were utterly unlovable. When we had nothing to offer him in return. I'm talking about inconvenient. To get up from the throne. To empty himself. To take on flesh. To take on flesh as an infant and become dependent on that which he created. To go through the, the cold, the, the, the elements, the weariness of life for 30 some odd years. To go to the cross to die a painful, suffering, physical death, but then beyond that to suffer the full and in, in, in infinite wrath of God against our sin for you and I, when we were what? Weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. Men, we need to persist in brotherly love with that right motivation saying in serving others, we are serving Christ. Well, with the right drive and right motivation, we're ready. We just need God's game plan for how we should practically love one another. And that's what he gives us in verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. To enter into the needs of the brothers in Christ is going to require a, a hope-filled perspective. It's going to require a, a patience to walk through trials with them. And it's going to need constant prayer to implore the Lord to act on their behalf. Our fourth and final point this morning is this. Enter the muck with God's game plan. Enter the muck with God's game plan. Muck is a theological term, in case you're wondering. It's deep in the pages of uh, somebody's systematic theology. I can't remember who at this point. But enter the muck, the grime, the grit, the, 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 the suffering. Be willing to get dirty with the brothers in Christ who are in the midst of it. And do that with God's game plan. You know, when you've got sick kids at home, it's, it's a horrible thing to be woken overnight with the sound of vomit, isn't it? And you're just praying that it's not in their bed. 
that they made it to the toilet. Because when it's in their bed, you're entering into the muck by changing sheets and cleaning up and, and you can't even figure out how to put one foot in front of the other at 2.30 in the morning, let alone try to take care of your kids and, and it's just a nightmare, isn't it? But if you know ahead of time that your kids are sick, then you can be prepared, right? You can give them the bucket. You can put them in a sleeping bag on the floor. You can make sure that you're checking on them throughout the night. You're still going to walk through the, the, the trial of them being sick, but you're going to do it ready for what's coming. Well, man, that's kind of what we're talking about here. This game plan that God provides us to be able to love one another with a genuine love, to be able to be hospitable to one another. You've got a brother in the midst of the sorrow of suffering. Man, he needs to be reminded of the hope of eternity. To be reminded to rejoice in hope, as Paul says. Not with some slap, happy, stupid grin on your face that says, cheer up, Romans 8 says all things work together for good. No, but to weep with a brother who weeps, but to remind that brother and say, you know what, brother, there's a day coming, Revelation 21 tells us. And that day that's coming, there's not gonna be any more sickness, any more disease. The disease that right now is ravaging your body that is so painful and sorrowful, and it's, it's so hard right now. But brother, I wanna encourage you that there's a day coming when that's gonna be gone. You know, right now you're walking through a trial in your marriage and sin has wrecked havoc on your, mar- havoc on your marriage. And there's, there's pain and there's sorrow and there's trials right now. But, but brother, I wanna encourage you and remind you there's a day coming when there's no more sin. When we're not gonna sin against each other. When we're not gonna have the consequences of sin any longer. Come alongside a brother who's lost a loved one and say to them, you know what, brother? Right now this hurts. But the Bible promises us a future where death is no more. So there's an ability to to weep with a brother who weeps, to enter into the muck, the grime, the suffering, and yet to do so in a way that you're also encouraging him and casting his mind on something that's true about God that's going to lead him to be able to potentially even rejoice in hope. And as we walk through these trials with one another, we need this mindset to rejoice in hope. There's so many times that I, I, I leave the counseling office after meeting with somebody and I, I just have to, to sit down and, and, and say, God, I, I hate sin. I hate what it does to my brothers. I hate what it does in their lives and in their marriages and, and I hate the effects of it. But man, if we don't have that hope to be able to rejoice in hope, we will become despairing as we try to meet the needs of our brothers in Christ, as we try to love one another with a love that is genuine, as we try to love one another as Christ had loved us. We need to maintain that hope-filled perspective. But the other thing too, if you've walked through a trial with a brother, you understand that it's not a, a one, one-off event, right? It's more than just, here's some money to help get you through the week. It's more than just, hey, I'm gonna meet with you and talk with you about how your, your marriage is struggling right now. It's more than just, hey, your kid is sick, I'm, I'm gonna pray for him. It's a journey that you're walking through with him. And sometimes it can be a lengthy journey. And so Paul says we need to be what? Patient in tribulation. Yes, in our own tribulation, we need to be patient, trusting that the Lord is working, trusting that, yes, Romans 8 is true, that all things are working together for our good. But as we walk with brothers, as we love one another with a genuine love, we need to also be patient with our brothers as we walk through the tribulation with them and to be committed for the long haul. When you seek to love a brother in Christ, don't approach that by saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm with you until somebody else comes along and relieves me. The mindset needs to be, no, I'm, I'm with you through the end. 
I'm going to see this through with you. Patience. And then finally, as part of God's game plan, we have to be men of constant prayer. Because the, the battles that we're up against are not battles of flesh and blood. They're, they're battles against the, the spiritual forces. So often they are. And if we're going to see a brother's need met, spiritual, physical, financial, whatever it may be, we need to be imploring the Lord to work. Because we don't have the power to help. God doesn't need our bank accounts. He doesn't need our wisdom. He doesn't need our bodies to help others. But he'll use us. So we need to be like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. What does he say? Here I am. Send somebody else. Here I am, but I'm too busy, God. Here I am, but man, I've got my own problems right now, God. I can't bother to, to worry about problems of somebody else. No, he says, here I am. Send me. Guys, if we're going to get dirty with one another, if we're going to get into the muck of one another's lives, it's going to be wearisome. It's going to be tiresome. It's going to be exhausting. So we need to do so with God's game plan in mind. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Well, I hope this passage has reframed hospitality a little bit for you. That it's not your wife baking brownies and having the Better Homes and Garden magazines out on the coffee table and having somebody over into your living room. Hospitality is way more than brownies. And it's significant. So significant, in fact, that God places it in the, the list of the qualities and the attributes that he requires of the men who lead his church. Of godly men. That we be men who love with a genuine concern for one another. Men who love devoted to seeing the good of our brothers come to fruition through putting our love for them into action. Men who love with the right motives, knowing that as we do that, we are serving the Lord and serving God. And men who love with the, the right approach, prepared with God's game plan for whatever trial might come our way. And so I wonder if somebody were to write a Yelp review of our lives, how would you be doing in the area of hospitality? Let's pray together. God, we thank you. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this, this challenge to love each other more genuinely. Even as something as simple as seeing one another and, and asking the question, how are you doing? But asking it with a genuine intentionality behind that. Lord, being willing when a brother is hurting, not to look over our shoulders and, and hope that somebody else is going to step up to meet the need, but being willing to say, here I am. Let me, let me be used to meet the need. How can I help? How can I serve? How can I meet this? How can I relieve the suffering? God, guard us against being men who are flippant with be warm and be filled. God, put us to work loving each other. Because Christ first loved us. Lord, make us a church that it's obvious, God, to the world around us and anyone who steps foot on our campus that we are a church full of the followers of Christ because of how we love one another. Lord, thank you so much that you loved us when we were unlovable. That you sacrificed so much for us when we had nothing to give you in return. 
God, crystallize that example in our minds and prompt us to love well as we go through the rest of this week and the rest of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.